Live from Your Mind Productions presents On the Threshold. Bonus episode, Patrician. Hello, I'm Gregory Moss, creator of On the Threshold. Due to some production delays, the next proper episode will be released next week. But in the meantime, I have a treat for you today. A few chapters of a gothic horror, low fantasy intrigue novel I wrote in 2013 about a republic devastated by plague and a populist uprising led by a plutocrat. I swear it wasn't nearly as topical seven years ago. Just so you know, each of the four chapters are from a different character's perspective, with that character's name being stated at the beginning. So, enjoy Patrician. Zeshwa. From his crouched perch on one of the decrepit outer towers, Zeshwa scanned the desolate grounds of the palatial manor, which gleamed bone-white even on this moonless autumn eve. Like the city in a microcosm, the estate was a crumbling shadow of its bygone glory, collapsing from its own corrupt hedonistic decadence into its current charnel ruin. He smiled as he once more reflected upon how this decay made it the perfect target for his plans. He idly twirled his consecrated obsidian dagger as he so often did, ruminating on how he would exact his revenge, finally testing whether the Circle's deathless masters truly deserved their titles. Every time he thought of the masters, he seethed with venom. They had dared to cast him out, to hunt him down for his heresy. Their lackeys pursued him all the way east to this distant shore, to the city of Koronos, but their persistence would be their downfall. The ignorant, debauched merchant oligarchs who ruled this city knew nothing of the mystic techniques of his western homelands. He planned to educate these petty princes in the effectiveness of his arts quite thoroughly, becoming the ultimate shadow, an untouchable assassin who would sell an inevitable end at the behest of the highest bidder, and the endless bloody intrigue of this city's interminably feuding patrician class would supply an unending source of bidders. In a few months, he would take on some apprentices, and soon he would form a great cabal of assassins, the supreme masters of the art throughout not just Koronos, but the entire Eastern Sea. 
with the wealth and souls reaped from the feuds of this continent, he would have sufficient power to return to the west and seize the circle, binding the deathless masters themselves into his black blade. But he reminded himself once again he first needed to focus on the task at hand. A woman inside this manor, apparently the granddaughter of some deceased dominating autocrat who had kept the other petitions under his thumb a decade past, was the key to his desires. Her death would earn him a very sizable purse, but more importantly, the visibility that only the invisible can attain. He would become the whispered rumor that all this city's murderous aristocrats would seek when they desired to eliminate obstacles to their little plots. His own obstacles at the moment were fairly minor, consisting chiefly of the small patrols of guards sullenly ambling along the walls and about the overgrown outer courtyard of the estate. They were clearly far fewer in number than had been intended to man the expansive residence during the family's height. The few remaining likely consisted of old loyal retainers and the cheapest raw thugs that the family could pay to fill the house's crimson uniforms and wield a halberd, or at least lean on one while pretending to keep watch. The assassin visually plotted his course along a narrow interior ledge of a wall, down through a tangled thicket of untended trees on which he would climb up into one of the manor's balconies. He briefly weighed the concern that he might be visible from the courtyard while along the ledge, but decided that even in the unlikely event that the inattentive guards looked up in his direction, his dark grey cloak would allow him to blend in with the wall given the evening's oppressive gloom. Satisfied with his course, Zeshua crept quickly along the ledge, his back pressed firmly against the wall's crack-strewn edifice. Everything proceeded smoothly until one misplaced step. Zeshua realized too late that he had placed too much weight in his right leg upon an unstable portion of masonry. He tried to steady himself by rebalancing with his left hand on the wall, but the wall's plaster came away with his grip, and the bricks beneath his right foot collapsed. He attempted to prevent his fall by grabbing the precipice, but only succeeded in bringing more of it down with him. He landed at the base of the wall in a pile of dust and ruined stone. His head was ringing as he lay on his back, staring up at the ash-black sky, but he quickly determined from the shouts that men were rushing towards the sound of the wall's collapse. He leapt to his feet, scanning for a source of cover when three guards rounded a wall and spotted him. One grizzled veteran, one hulking brute almost bursting from his chainmail, and one wiry youth. Before they could react, the soft flesh of the veteran's unprotected throat was torn by the silver blur of the throwing knife issued from Zeshwa's hand. The brute reacted in a stunned rage, charging at Zeshwa while bringing his heavy halberd back for an overhead strike. 
The assassin rushed at his charger, causing the already unsettled guard to hesitate in surprise for a few crucial fractions of a second. Zeshua planted his hand on either of the guard's armored shoulders, using their combined momentum to leapfrog in a flip over him, snatching the halberd from the grip of the bewildered brute and landing behind him. In one fluid motion, Zeshua used the long pole of the halberd to trip the guard, and then, in a long arc, he brought the blade down into the guard's back plunging the Trichakan steel through the iron chainmail and into his upper spine. The youth stood agape at the sight of his slain comrades, who had stood at his side no more than two breaths ago. The assassin grinned at him, drawing his scimitar and obsidian dagger. The youth leveled the point of his halberd against Zeshua, but the assassin swatted the tip aside with his sword, getting inside his guard and sating his dagger upon the lifeblood flowing through the boy's neck. Zeshua chanted incantations while the black blade fed on the young soldier's essence. He would need to invoke all of his arts if he was to complete the contract and survive the night. Regardless of how poorly trained, Zeshua had no intention of confronting a dozen armed, armored, and alerted soldiers in direct combat. The boy drained. Zeshua slashed his left palm with the dagger, completing the sacrifice by offering his own blood. The shadows undulated at the edge of Zeshua's vision. He knew that his offer had been accepted. The darkness would shield him from the eyes of men tonight. He darted to the trees, a shadow among shadows. The rattles of chainmail from many directions in the courtyard warned of the many guards rushing to the sound of his brief battle. Along the wall, the silhouettes of men suddenly animated and began calling out to each other, searching for the intruder and readying to strike. Once he immersed himself in the sanctuary of the overgrown garden shadows, Zeshwa weighed his options while silently slipping into the Stygian chutes. Even with the pact he had just forged, the estate's current alertness presented some risk. He could retreat and try again on a more favorable occasion. However, not only would the target likely take greater security precautions after this incident, but it would require admitting failure to his first major client, a most inauspicious beginning for the ultimate shadow of Koronos. No, it had to be tonight. The next question then was whether to continue along the originally plotted route through the balcony or to seek another way. Climbing the trees onto the balcony would leave him exposed to crossbow fire and the balcony itself was visible from both walls and the recent slaughtering grounds where he could see the guards were now congregating and coordinating response plan which presented its own issues. The assassin needed to act now or else security protocols would likely move the maiden to some sort of inner sanctuary before he had time to act. Searching for alternate entrances offered an uncertainty of success and a certainty of delay which he could ill afford. His sacrifice should protect him from their notice in any case. He climbed the sturdy yew closest to the balcony, steadily bracing each step to ensure that any creaking was timed with the wind rustling the courtyard. He reached the graying marble of the balcony and peered through the balusters into the open doorway. The houses of Impressive gloom surpassed even that of the garden shadows on this lightless eve. 
As his eyes adjusted, he realized that something stirred within the hallway, a spectral figure within the shadows. The phantom almost looked like her, but he couldn't quite be certain. Yet, she saw him. She cried out something in a barbaric tongue. Zeshua felt an impact piercing his back, then another, and fell into darkness. Sofia Mariana Vensova. Sofia Mariana Vensova had slipped from visions of stagnant decay into a world of tumultuous chaos. The night's events had deprived her of any hope of rest, not that her dreams had allowed her much respite anyway for the past year? Two years? She could not set a date with any certainty where one nightmare transitioned into another. She felt sure that her sister Elia suffered similarly, but found some escape through her night wanderings. Apparently Chance, or maybe Sophia's ally, had made good use of these ramblings by setting them in the path of the would-be assassin who now lay before her in one of the many cavernous cellars beneath Mariana Manor. He's from the west droned her nominal captain of the guard. Sophia stared at her captain. Her stare quite clearly conveyed her contempt for the captain's attempt to portray as a valuable insight that which would be obvious to any half-blind half-wit who had ever been to Coronos's harbor. The stare added that a sleepless night had not particularly increased her inclination to be charitable. Sophia's stares could be quite articulate. It was something of a family trait. Eh, continued the captain as he edged the other side of the table on which the corpse sat, a paltry barrier between himself and the woman a head shorter than him. He made a stumbling attempt to mask his retreat as repositioning himself to better show his analysis of the body before continuing to recite his observations. This one will not do, thought Sophia. This imbecile is a pathetic replacement for Spiro. Damn that assassin for cutting him down. He was one of the last of her family's old guard from the days of her grandfather, and probably the last of the manor's competent soldiers. He deserved a better death than that. Clothing good for camouflage in many different situations, with soft leather sewn inside for protection. So then who had sent the assassin, and who was the target? Her family had no shortage of enemies, whether longing to gain revenge for her grandfather's reign, scrambling for the few holdings remaining to them, or simply stamping out the dying embers of their greatness in case they should, by chance, catch some fuel again and gutter back to a semblance of life. Total armaments were one curved longsword, three iron daggers balanced for throwing, 23 caltrops, poisons for coating on blades, and a garrot, all of quality western make. Her father was the most obvious target. Even in his permanent opium stupor, he still gave the family line a semblance of legitimacy that warded off the claims of the Kyperian branch to their property. 
Now there's an obvious suspect. But they probably wouldn't have sent a western assassin. Their roots were firmly planted in the east, at least as far as she knew. Ability to sneak past so many guards proves his professional training. Yes, sneaking past so many excellent guards that she had to recruit from the dregs too inept to join in the Trajakan War definitely proved that he was a professional. The other possible target, of course, was her. No one else in the family was capable of holding everything together. Just look at her older sister, Elia. She could be reasonable when not in one of her episodes, but just an hour ago, Sophia had been led to the assassin's fallen body in the garden over the objections of her guards to find her crying hysterically over the corpse, apparently inconsolably distraught that she had had a hand in his death. We'll have the guards ask questions around the harbor as to who might have hired him. No. Her soft statement echoed across the cellar to fill the void of the sudden startled silence of her captain. I will not have them stumbling around the city, proclaiming to every ear in Koronos that the Mariana family has been attacked and has no idea who is responsible. Uh, the... well, I mean, they wouldn't be saying that we don't know anything, they'd just be asking questions. And by blindly asking questions of anyone who seems vaguely likely to give an answer, they would be showing to all the world that we don't have the faintest clue of where we should be striking back. And anyone who shows that he can't strike back against his enemies will find his enemies multiplying. The other families already have more than enough reason to think us weak. The captain hesitated to make sure that she was finished speaking for what would have been several breaths had he been breathing before meekly venturing so what would you have us do, my lady? I would have you do nothing, or at least nothing more than you usually do, as if there's a difference between the two. Secure the grounds, leave the body here for the day, and tomorrow night strip it, chop it into unrecognizable pieces no more than a thumb's length, put it in a sack, and then have a servant out of uniform quietly dump it into a canal. And, she added as she turned towards the stairs of the cellars, if I learn that any of the guards under your command has spoken of this incident to someone outside the manor, then you'd best pray that dismissal from your new post is the worst that befalls you. So where would she turn for answers, she mulled as she ascended the stone steps into one of the upper basements. Most of House Mariana's contracts in the underworld had slipped away with the rest of her family's influence. With the constant roiling of the criminal world and the ravages of the plague, she wasn't even sure who was still alive, let alone who would provide answers. But she could try to tap a few remaining sources there. Then there was her special ally, Gottschalk, who was always willing to help for a small price. After showing his effectiveness in protecting the manor tonight, he would probably be raising that price, and Sophia was always apprehensive to learn the new rates. Dabbling in those arts was never without danger, and after the Council of Koronos' decision earlier tonight, the church would render it even more treacherous two dawns hence. Vitka 
The agonized gas reverberated amongst the stones of the chapel. This is only happening because you have not yet redeemed your soul, admonished Vitka gently as the heretic was raised from the water barrel once again. Cold drops fell from his bedraggled upside-down face into the pool beneath him. How much of it was water, sweat, or tears, High Inquisitor Vitka couldn't be sure. The Holy Mother is forgiving. Let her embrace you with her love, she said, tenderly cradling his face in her hands and carefully wiping away the droplets that remained. All that you have to do is let her help you. His glassy, unfocused eyes slowly gazed around, as if beseeching aid from the other townsfolk gathered in a wide circle around the village's common area. We're all here to help you. They just want you to accept her love as well. Please, for your sake, she said, gently refocusing him to her. Just say where the others are and admit that you long for forgiveness. She will grant it. All you must do is ask. He stared back at her vaguely before making a tiny twitch of his neck and a gesture of refusal. When they had begun, the heretic was spitting denials and defiance at her. His resistance had been broken some time ago. All that was left was acceptance. Why do you prolong your suffering? She pleaded. Eventually you will accept forgiveness. You're only harming yourself until then. She let go of his face and then gestured for him to be plunged once more. As he was dunked, she noticed a woman wearing brown clerical garb at the forefront of the crowd, silently signaling for her attention. A church messenger. Please continue until I return, she said to the sisters of the local inquisitorial order before traversing trampled earth the dark-haired messenger. High Inquisitor Vitka, the messenger began with a small, pious bow. I bear good tidings from Koronos. The Council has seen wisdom and consented to the entry of the Inquisition. I am Sister Alexa. I am to take you to the city at once and to acquaint you with it. Very well. I will finish my work here and we shall depart on the morn. Alexa cocked her head to the side slightly, replying in a low voice, The Episcopa requests that you come as soon as possible. It is still afternoon. If we ride now, we can reach the city by tomorrow evening. I go where the mother bids, not Episcopa Theophania. God struck Koronos with a plague that they might repent their sins and allow the church full entry into their city, and she delayed negotiations so that while I was waiting outside, I might inspire the local clergy to deal with the infestation of Telerian heretics amongst the villages along this coast. They now have the momentum that they need without me, but I will not depart while in the midst of a redemption session. She subtly gestured with her head towards the barrel of water. As you will, she said then in almost a whisper. Might I ask something? 
Vitka smiled beatifically. Wise questions are the path to grace. Doesn't doing it with a watching crowd make getting the individual to repent more difficult than if you did it in private? Vitka examined the messenger closely. She was a slight woman, perhaps no more than eighteen years, bearing auburn hair atop a sharp-edged face in which were set hazel eyes complementing her tunic. More importantly, she seemed of sharp, resolute mind. She might have some potential. It indeed makes saving the souls of the erring individual somewhat more difficult. But that is not the only soul for which we should be concerned, she said, glancing at the assembled crowd. I will meet you when my work is done, and we shall discuss it further. Alexa bowed, and Fitko turned back to her labors. If Fitko judged correctly, Theophania intended to use her to settle some political scores and consolidate her hold on the city. Vitka, however, had no intention of being a tool in anyone's petty games. She would administer the Mother's will and cleanse the city honestly and justly. She returned to her redemptive work. Axiao Liberatore Ceta. Axiao Liberatore Ceta paused for a moment to drink in the sunset. The last of the golden rays swept across the sea to crown the domes and towers of Koronos in a radiant white golden glow, obscuring the imperfections accumulated over the centuries. But as the sun finally died, it turned the waters to an ocean of blood. The thought shook Axiao into returning to the task at hand. He grabbed another crate. By the smell of it, books so old that their leather covers were half-worn through, and began loading it onto the ship. If the other workers had noticed his lapse, they gave no sign, but he wouldn't expect them to chide the head of one of Koronos's most powerful houses. After setting the crate in the cargo hold, he began descending the gangplank to find that his nephew Giacco had finally escorted Cairo to the harbor with the rest of the intellectual refugees mulling about the loading area. The old man was clearly in friendly debate with Giacco. Such a long walk from the academy might wind most men his age, but as far as Axiao knew, Cairo was never lacking for breath when there was a point to be made. It just saddens me, said the old man, stopping in front of the ship to balance on his cane and stare back at the city, that Koronos should sink to this when it was founded on principles of free exchange of both goods and thoughts. Actually, cut an Axial, strolling towards them, it was really only after the Great Schism, 300 years after the city first elected its first Grand Prince, that the Council officially ruled to take no stance on matters of religion, and that was to make sure that our trade with the Trijakins wouldn't be disputed, not any high-minded principles. Cairo turned to offer him a wrinkly smile. Axial realized that he had just played precisely the part his old mentor had intended and returned the smile. 
And now, continued Cairo in a voice just touched with sadness, the council has concluded this 400-year policy is no longer in the city's interests. A dagger of guilt slid between his ribs. Worry not, said Cairo, settling his closed eyes on the greatest of the city's domes. I understand the necessity of the council's decision, and even your vote. The sickness is consuming the city, and without the church's herbal expertise, it will only worsen. The people cry out the judgment is upon them, and seek divine aid, he added with more than a hint of contempt. It's cowardly idiocy, Axiao's cousin snarled at him. The plague is yet to even strike any of the great houses. Axiao sought for a reply, but none save vague exhalations came to his lips. I have a theory on that, actually, interjected Cairo. Oh, said Axiao, I take it you don't believe that it's because the mother blesses the great houses and shelters them from harm. I'm clearly becoming predictable in my old age. No, just your philosophies. Axiao eyed a bright flash of blue accompanied by a small coterie of armed men coming towards the crowd. At their head stood a hard-faced middle-aged man doing his best to look imperious in a slightly formal leather work toga. He recognized the man as Nerio Mbotligo, chief harbor master. Tenario's right was Sister Delia, whose fine habit of bright blue silk stood out brilliantly among the dusty greys of the harbor. He tried to recall details of Delia's standing within the church hierarchy, but ecclesiastic politics were rather opaque. The crowd of scholars quieted at their approach. By order of the council's duly appointed harbor master, this vessel is to be searched on suspicion of bearing stolen cargo, announced Nario to the crowd at large, puffing out his chest and dramatically brandishing with his ceremonial harbor master's hook. If you're searching for the dignity of Koronos, then I'm pretty sure the church took it, jeered Rurik of Tybalt from the crowd to the hoots of his companions. Sister Delia's deep brown eyes locked into Axiao with an expression of interest on her round face. As usual, Axiao stood a half a head above the crowd. Stand aside for inspection, said the harbor master with a practiced dismissive wave of his hand. And how long is inspection to take, inquired Tryphon of Vasilis innocently. Perhaps until dawn? Wouldn't that be convenient? Then we would have to be here precisely long enough for the church to gain the legal authority to imprison us for heresy. Submit to inspection or you will be charged with interfering with the duties of a representative of the council, replied Nario with a thin facade of cool professionalism failing to mask a smirk. The council, you say, boomed Axiao, striding towards Nario, hand on the hilt of his sword. Counselor, said the harbor master with apparent surprise. Perhaps he had been too focused on the crowd in general to notice him. He looked to the sister for support. She didn't even acknowledge him, maintaining her silent focus on the patriarch of House Liberatore. 
it is suspected that stolen property has been smuggled aboard this ship. And what property is that? inquired Axial, now coincidentally towering over the middle-aged man. A silver statuette of a raven stolen from House Salarco two nights ago. And you suspect that this stolen silver statuette has been secreted aboard a ship of scholars? I, I have reason enough to warrant an inspection. Axial caught a glimpse of his own hand, white on the grip of his blade. He breathed and took stock of the situation. Nario was of little consequence physically and had only the ceremonial hook for a weapon. The six men behind Nario wore chainmail, small shields, and short spears. He had risen at least once with every Koronos man of noteworthy martial accomplishments during the Telemric campaign, and he recognized none of them here. With his nephew backing him, they could probably rout the seven of them if the matter came to blows. I trust these men with my honor. If the statue is not found within a fortnight, then House Liberatoria will compensate House Salarco for its loss in full. A and what if House Salarco says that the statue is an irreplaceable heirloom? stammered the Harbor Master. Then I am confident that it is not aboard this ship. In any case, I have pledged my honor to my faith in these men. Do you think my honor so cheap that I pledge it lightly? He nudged the blade of his sword from its sheath, just enough to be sure that Nario noticed. He hoped that the harbor master had the good sense to realize that if he pushed the matter further, Axiao would be well within his rights to demand a duel for the slight. Of course not, counselor. I have no doubts as to your honor. He cast a glance of nervous exasperation to the sister, who only continued to hold her steady gaze. They departed in a dignified haste. When your father first brought you to the academy, I thought that a family born of mercenaries could only be one of uneducable brutes. After your incident with the wooden spoons, I was quite sure of it. You can only imagine how happy I am, how wrong you proved me, said Cairo. I, I don't know what to say, replied Axial. Then say nothing and smile. It's worked for me all these years. And with that, they said their final pleasantries, and the ship departed for Glumani, where it would hopefully find sanctuary. On the near-deserted, shadow-haunted harbor, Jacko laughed. <laughs> Nario probably thought it would be so easy to gain favor with the Episcopa by delaying the academics just long enough for the church's window to open up. You showed him, huh? Sure, replied Axiao darkly, and now I've made House Liberatore a target. Ipretes Anore He walked amidst the dusty remnants of the family's great legacy. Here in the catacombs lay the forefathers who formed the foundations of the house above them, one generation upon another upon another, down into the dim depths of the past. As always, they reminded Epretes why he was proud to serve House Mariana, 
why he was proud that some of his own ancestors lay in a section of the crypts, having done their part to support the house for centuries. He trudged through these hollowed halls, bearing on his back a blood-stained burden, the leather sack containing the mutilated carcass of one who had sought to strike against the house. It would be interred in the sea with all of the other worthless waste. After disarming the traps, Ifretes passed through the concealed gate to the larger Coronos underworld. Though he had trod these paths before, he would need to mind his way carefully, lest he be lost in a labyrinth of interconnecting tunnels, caverns, access ways, and alleys in the underlevels of the city. Why should she make you go all the way to the canal? His wife, Lara, had nagged. Just dump it directly into the sewers. And risk clogging them? No, Sophia has the right of it, he had replied. Laura had never really trusted Sophia. She shared the opinion of the washmaids that her mother, Elenor, was somehow behind the family's recent misfortunes, even six years after her death. They're an accursed people, Laura would always say in their whispered debates. Godless demon worshippers. Then who would you have me follow, he would always reply in exasperation. Her father, barely coherent through his drug haze? Her older bastard cousin in the rare instances when she's sane? Her younger cousins and sisters, too weak or naive to run an estate? Who? Everyone else is either dead or gone. And why do you think that is? Laura would always say. His lantern only illuminated a small distance before him. So, even as much as his burden was slowing him, he frequently had to stop in order to make sure he was on the right course. His general route was one of descent, for Mariana Manor was perched high atop the mountain, such that even the dead could look down upon the city. At least those parts of the family catacombs to which he had ventured were above the mountain's base. Epretes was unsure just how deep the necropolis went, and he doubted that anyone in living memory had plumed its depths. He paused at a fork. To the right, the tunnel ascended slightly. To his left, harsh steps tore downwards, but there was the faintest smell of the night's open air. He knew that he was supposed to turn left at some point, but he didn't recall the left hand's descent as having been quite that sharp. He looked back and forth between them until he noticed to his right that the distant light of his lantern had caught something. A glint off of six red eyes staring at him. Then he heard the low growls, rough reverberations from three throats, and they were coming nearer. He edged towards the leftward path his own eyes fixed on the eyes in the darkness. They advanced steadily toward the edge of his lantern's radiance. The shadows lunged. In a desperate blur, he threw the sack at them, stumbling down the stairs, dropping the lantern and plunging into blackness. Iprete struggled to his feet as above him ripped the sharp sounds of teeth tearing flesh. He fled through the dark, groping on the walls and floors for some glimmer of guidance. The mauve gloom devoured his world. He ran and crawled until he collapsed, 
as breath finally left him entirely. He lay on the cold stone for a lightless eternity. Then he heard something. It was the pitiful sound of a child's mournful sobbing. Eprete slowly rose. He felt his way towards the source of the sound, step by step. He came around a corner and saw in the guttering glow of a candle a child. It was a little girl sitting with her back on the wall, crying into her rough spun skirt. Hello? He tried. She stopped sobbing. She lifted her face up and turned to look at him. Her skin was a pale, desiccated husk, smeared with the blood she was weeping from her eyes that were orbs of pure black. Part of the cracked skin on her cheek was peeling off, revealing the muscles and tendons underneath. Please help me, she begged. Stay away, he begged in reply. Please, she said, crawling towards him. I'm so hungry. Stay away, he screamed. He dived back into the darkness. Her crying resounded through the halls with new depths of despair. Apretes ran with what little stamina he had left in him. He was no longer a young man. He sought for light, for the noise or smells of life, for anything that would lead him to escape. Eventually, his eyes caught the distant gleaming of firelight. He stumbled in its direction. At last, he came upon its source, a great brazier beyond the end of the hall. Its light was blinding at first, but he let his eyes adjust before making his way towards it. The hall opened into a grand chamber, so large that even the pit of fire could cast no more than a faint half-light upon its walls. As he neared the pit, he felt its heat. He hadn't realized just how cold he was, but now that the flame started to move his blood once more, he felt as though his veins were awash in ice. He walked up to the fire and began to warm his hands. He could finally breathe for a moment as life flooded back into him. There was a laugh behind him. He jerked around to see a cloaked figure standing between himself and the door where he had entered. The face was shrouded in shadows which his eyes could no longer pierce, having adjusted to the light of Brazier. The laugh continued, echoing through the chamber to come back upon itself. Humans work so hard to forget that they are flesh, rang the high voice from the cloak. They come up with all sorts of amusing stories. Aprete stood frozen before the figure. But we know otherwise, don't we? Shadows emerged from the walls. Flesh, flesh, flesh. The shadows converged. Won't you join us? There were too many.
on the threshold is produced and distributed by Live From Your Mind Productions under an attribution non-commercial share-alike 4.0 international license. This episode was written and performed by Gregory Moss. Thank you for listening.